safeguarding an international law. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. This mini-series of podcasts is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. And in this series, we look at how safeguarding is developing not only here at home, but around the world. We look at safeguarding adults as well as children, and we explore safeguarding in different settings. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and today I'm joined in the studio by Professor Rosa Friedman. Rosa is the inaugural Professor of Law, Conflict and Global Development at the University of Reading. She's a non-practicing barrister, a member of the Honourable Society of Grey's Inn, and she's published extensively on UN human rights bodies and systems, and on UN peacekeeping. And particularly importantly for today, accountability for human rights abuses committed during such operations. She's a member of the UN Secretary General's Civil Society Advisory Board on the Prevention of Sexual Exploitation and Abuse, is a specialist advisor on safeguarding to the United Kingdom Government International Development Committee, and sits on the UK FCO Women, Peace and Security Steering Group. I've spoken at the same events as Rosa. She's introduced me to the most incredible array of people who work in safeguarding globally, and I'm excited to hear her speak again today. So, Rosa, how does an academic find themselves working in safeguarding in an international context? It's a very good question, Ian. Um, And thank you for having me on today. I I really fell into this piece of work. I started off looking at the UN and, and human rights systems, and one day someone came to me and said, Rosa, can you help us sue the United Nations because they brought cholera into Haiti? I said, of course you can't sue the United Nations. There are all sorts of jurisdictional bars to doing so, but I don't like the idea that there are all these cholera victims in Haiti. So let's see if we can take a human rights approach to immunity and to accountability. Mm. Um, That was in 2014. And by becoming uh, an expert and part of the group that were trying to hold the UN accountable for cholera in Haiti, I found myself being asked more and more to advise around other accountability issues, particularly sexual exploitation and abuse by peacekeepers. Mm. In 2016, as part of that work, um, I met the CEO, Sarah Blakemore, of Keeping Children Safe, a global safeguarding organisation, and the only global safeguarding organisation. And the rest, as they say, Ian, is history. And so here you find yourself today doing both academic work there, but also practical work. Is that right? Yeah, very much so. Um, I was once called an academic activist by a diplomat friend of mine, and I wear that badge with pride. Um, I believe that the role and function of an academic is knowledge production. And for me, Mm. part of my knowledge production is also working in the field, testing um, and and testing and implementing frameworks, but also um, gathering data and evidence bases So a lot of my work has a practitioner element, both in terms of at the highest levels globally with the United Nations or with state governments, but also at the grassroots levels on the ground. So talking about that data, uh, one of the things we've been doing in this series of podcasts with our listener has been considering trends. Uh, And one of the things I'm keen to hear about today are, are what actually are the safeguarding issues that arise in international development? I mean, the safeguarding issues that arise, uh, particularly around sexual exploitation and abuse, but all forms of abuse, um, Mm. are are the same everywhere. They're around power, power differentials, where you have power imbalances, you have far greater need for um, addressing those or redressing the the, the imbalance, and you have far more Mm. safeguarding issues. Now, there are particular issues around international development, um, 
that relate to what I call law across scale. You have laws at a national level, okay. sometimes laws at a local yep. level. You have laws at the sort of regional level, the European system, the African system, and so forth. And then you have international laws. But what happens where you have an actor, like a, a, an international NGO, that's got its headquarters yep. in one country, but is operating in another country? Where do the laws kick in? Which laws and who can hold mm. whom accountable for breaches of them? But that's only one aspect, as you know, of safeguarding, that, that legal side. Yeah. But it, if we look at, for example, whether they're from the African Union or the UN or NATO, they come under a series of laws. They come under the laws of their national military. They come under the laws of the international organization yeah. they're working for. They also come under a whole series of international standards. That has developed over time. It, of course, it's, it's not good enough, and we will always have um, lack of accountability, like we do in this country, only 1% of rapes being prosecuted. But at least there are laws and legal frameworks in place. Whereas in the international mm. development and international aid sector, it's unclear currently which laws apply. And that means that there's yeah. almost no possibility of accountability. Because one of the things we've been talking about in this series is how you build systems around safeguarding in those international settings. Uh, and it seems weird to use the frame in, phrase international setting, but where, for example, you've got one organisation which is domiciled in a particular country working in another country, and then you've got people moving around the systems, moving around the countries, it's really difficult to connect the dots, isn't it? Yes, and it's, it's something that um, is different actors are trying to address in different ways. So... Um, the yeah. UN, for example, has introduced something called clear check, uh, which is like a DBS check, but it's not really around convictions. It's more around allegations and accusations. Um, similar mm. things have been developed um, uh, in line with Interpol. Uh, but these are, these are not good enough um, and they're not strong enough. What we've been doing with Keeping Children Safe, the University of Reading and Keeping Children Safe have, have developed and designed a framework for these types of actors. And it's a framework that mm. really starts with safeguarding as an organizational issue, an organizational culture, yeah. safeguarding being the responsibility of everyone in an organization, whether it's a library, Harvard University or the UN, and really having yeah. strong safeguarding um, policies and procedures um, in place before an organization goes out to do any work. And those safeguarding policies and processes um, also rely on the national laws. Um, they're in line yes. with the national laws of the country where an organization is headquarters, but they uphold the international standards, um, which are drawn from various places, including the Convention on Protecting Persons with Disabilities or the Convention on the Rights mm. of the Child and so forth. Then what happens is we work with these organizations to say, how do we adapt your safeguarding for the context in which you're working? And that's about doing legal yeah. mappings of countries or places where the organization works. You know, these are not quick fix solutions. Some people say, let's just create a special tribunal. Let's just create some big buzzword. Mm. Buzzwords don't help for safeguarding. What needs to be done is evidence-based, robust safeguarding that really understands the law across scale and really can be adapted to fit into the different places where an organization works. So the example often that I give, Ian, is what would you do if um, you saw that a colleague of yours someone that you share an office with or you're working with is accessing child abuse online. 
Do you know what the law is? Do you know if there's mandatory reporting in the country that you're in? Mm. Do you know where to report? Is there a clear whistleblowing procedure in your organisation? Do you know um, within the country that you're in whether reporting that person in might lead to the child being put into further danger? Mm. Because at the heart of safeguarding, as you know, is making sure that you're not putting people at risk of further harm. And if you can't answer that, you or someone who runs a large international NGO or in fact anyone listening to this then you don't have proper safeguarding in place in your organization and and when you drill down into the detail like that is when um, people turn around and say you know what we actually do need to do a self-assessment and think about is safeguarding Mm. something we're recognizing as an internal responsibility or are we viewing it like many people do as something external something about protecting children protecting adults who are at risk but not recognizing the need for organizations to actually look internally first. Can I just take a step back? We're we're talking about organizations, companies, bodies that work in a lot of different countries. And it was really helpful for you to mention the international structures and the international legal framework. One of the things that I have been struggling with is whether safeguarding is now actually an international legal concept I mean, there is no, for example, there is no centralised document. There is no declaration as to safeguarding, obviously. And this morning I was talking to an Irish social worker. So even though the concept of safeguarding exists in Ireland and it exists obviously in England and Wales and it exists in Scotland, he was saying to me, well, safeguarding in Ireland is a a risk-based model and safeguarding in England and Wales is a rights-based model. So... Is there an international concept of safeguarding? And if so, where do, where do we find it? The idea of risk um, is often the reason why organisations will implement safeguarding. Um, mm. They're worried about reputational risk or damage has been done to their mm. reputation because of, of widespread scandals or because of exposure of holes in their safeguarding. Mm. But really safeguarding... Um, is about rights, or at least there is no international law on safeguarding, as you say. There are international standards which safeguarding upholds, and there is um, an international gold standard of safeguarding which Keeping Children Safe has developed since its creation after the the mass abuse in West Africa, largely by humanitarian Mm. workers and some peacekeepers in the early 2000s. And that model has been um, implemented, like I say, from libraries to Harvard University to the United Nations and in, and in many of the, the large donor organizations. Um, but the thing about safeguarding is there are legal elements, but it is not a law. And um, mm. there are many people who present themselves as experts on safeguarding, safeguarding consultants. Mm. You'll see them all over LinkedIn and all sorts of places. But if you actually get them to drill down into what is safeguarding, what are the standards it's built on, or how do you do it, many of them don't actually know. Um, Safeguarding is is about four things, right? It's about um, people, personnel, policies, Mm. processes, and accountability. And there are, Mm. uh, I mean, I I, I keep talking about keeping children safe because their work is the the gold standard on this, but they also have a self-assessment tool on their their website. Most of their resources are there available for free. They're a member network. Um, And you can go in and you can have a look and and do a self-assessment. Any organization can to think about, are we implementing safeguarding? But what is it built on? It's built on human rights standards, international human rights standards, yeah. um, which, are, which are key to safeguarding, concepts of dignity and non-discrimination, of course, but also the very specific rights that you find in, in particular conventions. 
It's also, sure. you know, so it's built on international understandings, right? Um, generally agreed understandings. Who is a child? Someone under the age of 18, mm -hmm. right? Now, that might be different in different circumstances in different countries, but you have to have some form of international or global standard that everyone's adhering to, sure. particularly these organizations that are, are working transnationally. Um, I think trying to understand it on a theoretical level as some kind of competing models between risks and rights is um, it's moving too far really away from, from the practitioner work of how to do it, what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my bread and butter is to be an academic and to think about theory. Yeah. But, but really, it, it doesn't matter which way you're looking at this safeguarding. You might be approaching it from risk or rights. It, it is almost immaterial to are you doing the safeguarding properly. I know I haven't fully answered your question there, Ian, but I, I have answered <laughs> it well enough. <laughs> Well, I think the I think the truthful answer is actually at the moment, although safeguarding is an international concept, I don't think it's an international concept of law. I think it's effectively a collection of different ideas, both from social work, health, policing, and also law. But I don't think it's codified into something where we can say to a country, you need to reach X standard of safeguarding, because I think it's almost an impossibility at the moment. Do you think that's right? Well, I, yeah, I think I think the starting point with many countries isn't let's reach X standard of safeguarding. It's let's have the laws, but also the processes and frameworks in place um, yeah. that, that you need yeah. to underpin safeguarding. So do you have clear definitions of who is a child? Do you have clear definitions of who can consent to be married? The idea of, um, mm -hmm. of you know, children being forced into to being slaves, Right, I don't call it yeah. child marriage because it's not. Do you have um, clear? Do you have clear processes for people to report in abuse of any type? Mm. Um, do mm. you have clear protections for whistleblowers? Do you have a whole separate whistleblower mechanism? Do you have? I mean, an, an example that I've that I've heard before uh, from keeping children safe is going into train, um, going into countries to train police on safeguarding. Because the police in this particular country, if there were reports of a child being abused, they more likely than not, that child would be re-abused by police officers. So I, I think wow. before we start asking about safeguarding uh, for countries and, and pushing countries to implement safeguarding, we actually have to ask the first set of questions, which is, do you have robust systems in place, both in terms of law and accountability, but also training and working with your state actors to prevent mm. and respond to abuse? Safeguarding is an mm. organizational issue. So then, then the big question is, do the big donors, um, so we worked with DFID on safeguarding for, mm -hmm. for large international NGOs. Um, and again, the information on that is available on their website. Do big donors require safeguarding to be implemented mm. before they give money to these big organizations? Um, do, we, do we have certain standards that we're asking different branches of the state to uphold? Um, I don't think that we need to have an international law on safeguarding. Um, okay. And if we did have an international law on safeguarding, how does that then apply to multinational corporations or to FIFA or to anyone else? I think it's much yeah. stronger to have clear internationally understood definitions of safeguarding, both of what it is and how to implement mm -hmm. it, and then work with different types of organizations to make sure that they implement it and uphold it themselves. Is there a counter argument to that? Uh, and this is the only reason I ask. When we have people who are working transnationally, internationally, and 
it's difficult to identify other than perhaps a local legal system, but but difficult to identify a means of gaining accountability or redress. Doesn't that give an argument for there to be a centralised system with a centralised centre of responsibility in respect of safeguarding issues? No. <laughs> Said like a true academic, no lawyer, you're wrong. Go on, tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> First of all, we... We can see that those systems of having a centralised place means that you go away from the detail of implementation, the grassroots, okay. you come up to, to a sort of general standard, right? We see that with human rights yeah. bodies. Secondly, we see at the international level that the likelihood of having global agreement on anything, on any new type of system is very, very small. Think about the environmental bodies, which don't really Mm. exist, and how everything is squeezed into the human rights system because it was created at a time and a place where there was enough agreement that it should be created. So I'm I'm thinking here realistically. Mm. But, But thirdly and most importantly is accountability isn't the only part of safeguarding. Accountability is one aspect. So having true safeguarding implemented will mean that, first of all, you look to prevent a problem. Second of all, where there is a problem, you look to remedy it. It might be through psychosocial support, right? It might be Mm -hmm. through all sorts of remedies that have nothing to do with legal accountability. Um, And the, the accountability aspect is what not just lawyers, but most people focus on. Right, courts and and you you know this better than me, Ian. Right, courts is the last yeah. resort, and and courts are absolutely are, are outside of the reach of most people in any society. Um, that type of justice. Mm. Um, I don't think we need a. I don't think we need a big special court. I think what we need is accountability structures throughout, and accountability structures okay. following the money. Right, we know that money is where particularly sure. In any organization. So making money dependent on robust safeguarding is the way forward. Whether it's having a, 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 a Premier League table of large multinational corporations and asking what their mm. safeguarding looks like and they can go up and down the table and I can decide whether I'm buying a Coca-Cola or I'm buying an innocent f- smoothie or anything else because based mm-hmm. on who has more robust safeguarding to prevent children being used um, in their supply chains. Or whether it's about sure. large donors saying your the money that we're going to give to you is conditional on safeguarding. Or whether it's even around at a smaller scale level. I mean, what we're seeing in terms of um, refugee crises, whether it was in Syria, Afghanistan, mm. now in terms of Ukraine, making sure that organizations who are working on the ground have access to safeguarding materials, but also that they can be held to account. And for anyone listening who isn't a lawyer, who wants to do this? I mean, one easy way to do it is to to ask before you donate. Can I see your safeguarding policy? Okay. You know? That, That's a really interesting that idea. That level of accountability, we're holding the organisations to account in advance of them doing the work rather than trying to find accountability structures after abuse has happened. And uh, again, slightly flipping it on its head, but this week is the only, the second time in my career where I've been asked to advise about vetting donors. So I think that vetting donors is something which is really important. I don't think that organisations should allow money into them if it's coming from someone who is involved in human rights abuses or, sorry, that's not like human rights, um, 
shouldn't be involved from someone who is involved in human rights abuses or somebody who has got a history of safeguarding concerns. Do you think organisations have adopted that idea or that model? Look, I think we can see that model um, in different ways. So say, for example, on counterterrorism, um, making mm-hmm. sure that you're, that people aren't funding organisations, giving donations or taking money from organisations that are linked to terrorism. And, and part of that has mm. been through the Ombudsman at the UN. Um, sure. And, and people being worried about their assets being frozen. You know, the sticks and carrots uh, we don't like terrorism, mm. but also, by the way, please don't be associated with terrorist organisations. Otherwise, this bad thing will happen. Um, of course. Where it comes to, to human rights abuses, remember only only the state or state actors can commit human rights abuses. And this, you're talking about sort of veers into this area around business and human rights, or around non-state actors and human rights. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where that's where this level of accountability, the general public holding organisations to account or donors holding them to account or people holding donees to account comes into play. There's not a system like human rights bodies told them to account. So yeah. I think ethical consumerism is, is what you're talking about, just flipped on its head. Do you want to be taking money from an organization or a large charitable fund that's attached to a business where small children are being sent down cobalt mines or where, Mm. um, or where uh, on a lower level example, where um, the, the business has made all its money through opioids in America and through Mm. fueling the opioid Mm. craze. Um, But these are more moral questions than legal questions. And I I don't think there is necessarily a legal answer other than to go through this kind of soft law around non-state actors and human rights, which I don't believe in. We've spoken about children and we've spoken about, you mentioned earlier adults at risk. And obviously, you know that I have a bias perhaps towards more safeguarding respect of adults at risk. One of the things that concerns me is the focus. I understand why there is a focus on children. I understand the history around that. I understand some of the awful examples of exploitation that have taken place and still take place. But also we have recent concrete examples of abuses of adults at risk. But it doesn't really seem to be on the international agenda. And I wondered if that was your experience too. Yes, that, that is my experience. I think part of the reason is because people view this as part of the disabilities rights campaigns, um, not recognising that many adults at risk are not necessarily persons with disabilities. Um, and so in, in, in many ways, it's fallen under an umbrella where it doesn't naturally sit, where, you know, some aspects yeah. do, but many aspects don't. Um, there's also, of course, um, sort of the the aspect around adults who are at risk in terms of trafficking. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and many of those adults are women. Um, and and then again, it's sort of shoved under the eliminating discrimination against women, human rights umbrella, mm. rather than seeing this as adults at risk. Um, and then also, of course, irregular migrants and refugees. Um, and if we think about all three of those groups, they are groups who are less likely to be able to organize and protest and self-organize, either in terms of power yeah. imbalances, if we come back to what we we're saying at the beginning, but also um, often for, the, for their own safety, um, but also, again, in terms of access and everything else. Where it comes to children, no country, no mm. person wants to say, oh, I hate children, 
it's okay they're being abused. And people can visually see that they are smaller, that they are weaker, and that they are Mm. at risk of abuse simply by existing in the world as smaller, weaker, mini, mini adults, right? Um, Yes. And that makes it in many ways easier to to get people on board with safeguarding. The other issue around children is that we have all, we all share this in common, we have all once upon a time in heart, we can all relate in to children. And there is a much stronger civil society uh, actors, civil society community at the at national levels and global levels around children, um, sometimes mm. around intersectionality, children with disabilities, um, LGBTI mm. children and so on. But, but much stronger, much better networked in and much better at lobbying and keeping the focus on children. Um, I also think that we're, it, it's simply an underdeveloped area of knowledge and understanding both around law and practice, adults at risk. And, and remember that the, the terminology, okay. as you know, changes in every country as to what we mean what by does. adults at risk and who comes yeah. into that category and, and, how we, and how we judge or define whether a person is or isn't an adult at risk. Um, so I think it's probably many years, if not decades, behind children in terms of developing Mm. understandings as well as laws and practices to safeguard adults at risk. I was wondering, and maybe it's just pie in the sky from my perspective, but I was thinking if I can persuade international sports bodies to unify not only around safeguarding children, but unify around safeguarding adults at risk as well, I wondered if they might be the natural flag bearer to try and deal with some of those issues. I wonder if you think sport might be a conduit to sort of build the idea. I mean, you know this from other areas that we talk about, but we won't discuss this on the podcast, that um, sport seems to be the place where lots of tricky conversations can be had and fleshed out, even though uh, Mm. they apply in many other facets of society. And I don't know whether that's because so many people like sports, or so many people mm. hate sports but were forced to play sports, or what it is about sports <laughs> that unites the world. Um, but but um, there is there is something to be said for engaging sports and sports teams mm. because they work across communities and they've done, you know, there's been, as we know, horrific abuse of children in, in sports. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and adults. And adults. But, but, but we've seen it on the front pages of the media and on radio shows and documentaries around mm. children and around, and around adolescents. Um, that's because children and adolescents are engaged with sports. I don't know enough about adults at risk and sports to know whether getting the, these large sporting organizations and large clubs to champion this would be, uh, would be useful. Um, I think that, that having, having sports clubs championing anti-racism, right? Yeah. Anti-homophobia, anti-transphobia has been an absolute yeah. turning point in terms of raising awareness. Um, Me in too. Terms of, in terms of having them champion it in the way that they are doing around children, about rooting out the safeguarding issues in their own organizations, I'm not sure that, that mm. there are that many safeguarding issues because I'm not sure how many, how many adults at risk that they work with. So I think that there's, there's a two-pronged approach here. One is to have these organizations look internally, and one is to have mm. them also be flag bearers, champions for a cause of raising awareness 
getting this issue to be talked about because we know that until you can name a problem, you can't address a problem. Um, exactly. And it can only be a win-win for them if they are truly committed to safeguarding. They need to be truly committed to safeguarding all people, not just children. Absolutely. And I suppose it almost feels like I'm suggesting it by stealth, but I was thinking if you increase inclusivity in, in all sports and, and you have adults at risk or what we consider in an English and Welsh sort of terminology adults at risk, playing in sports, then there is an emphasis on understanding how to safeguard them. And that emphasis can spread across the world. And as we're building towards more inclusive sports, I sort of wondered whether it might be just an easier way of introducing a conversation about a standard or a concept. Because it's not an easy conversation to say to somebody, we need to talk about your practices in respect of labour. We need to talk about your practices in respect of marriage. We need to talk about your practices in respect of consent to sexual relations. Sports more universal. It's, in a sense, less pointed, maybe. I mean, that's the thing is, why, why can't we talk to organisations about their practices in terms of marriages? Why can't we say to an organisation, you're going to work in a country where it is lawful or legal to marry a 14-year-old, but you are headquarters here and you've hired a member of staff locally and now he's telling you that he's going to marry a 14-year-old. What are you going to do about that, right? Why can't we have these conversations? We need to get more comfortable with asking organisations tricky questions, with asking one another tricky questions. Mm. We need to get more comfortable with saying to an organisation, what is your policy about your staff members when they're abroad uh, paying for sex? You know, we, Absolutely. we need to, if we can't ask the questions, if we can't name the problem. And usually you and I are either being paid or brought in pro bono to ask those questions. If we feel uncomfortable yeah. asking them, then how are we ever going to shine a spotlight on the types of abuses that there are? So I've definitely not answered your question because I'm um, arguing with the basic premise of it. It's about being brave, I suppose, in an international context. It's not about expo exporting standards. It's not about trying to set an international standard. What you're saying is it's about trying to establish a safeguarding culture for children and adults at risk. It's about being very clear about what safeguarding is and establishing the boundaries and parameters in which an organisation can operate. Not having safeguarding as something tacked on at the end, but making sure that it is central to an organisation's purpose. That when an organisation is starting up, they don't write all of their policies and then add on safeguarding five years later when a scandal happens. But also that when we're working with any organisation, advising them about anything that we ask, What's your safeguarding policy? If I'm going to be working as a consultant for someone, I want to know what their whistleblowing policy is, just in case something happens. I don't mm. want to be chasing around for it afterwards. It should be part of a package that when I get given a contract with a code of conduct, I also get given the safeguarding and the whistleblow. And we need to normalise that. We need, If we want this to be rolled out, that safeguarding is part and parcel of every organisation, we need to normalise it. In the 1980s... Um, feminists started to name the problem of sexual harassment. Prior to that, it didn't mm. have a name. A man slaps you on the bum, a man makes um, a man makes lewd comments at you, a man constantly is asking you out of work and he's your boss. There was no name for it. And until you could name it as sexual harassment, right, you couldn't address it through both employment policies but also through law. I think it's the same here. Until we can name the issues that need to be safeguarded against, whether it's about marriage um, of, of minors whether it's about um, children being used uh, for slave labour, whether it's about mm. um, abuse by um, power differentials, sexual harassment in the workplace, or sexual exploitation abuse of beneficiaries. Until we can talk about them, name these things, we can't address them. And 
And so I think that we, we have a role to play in this that goes beyond advising on law. The role to play in this is normalising having those conversations. And I told you it would be an interesting conversation. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, today. If you want to know more about us, visit www.39essex.com. If you want to know more about Rosa and her work, I can tell you now, just Google her and you will find a multiplicity of important, useful and interesting things. If you want to connect on socials, then you can add me on Twitter at Council Tweets. You can add the podcast at safe underscore cast. You can connect with the public law team at 39 Public Law. Join us next time for Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast available where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Thank you.